In the summer of 1975, a group of women in California banded together to file a class action lawsuit. Their mission was to seek justice for pregnant women who had endured manipulation and coercion from doctors. These women claimed their rights as patients had been ignored because of their race and because they did not speak English. So who were these women? They became known as the Madrigal Ten. The Madrigal Ten were a group of Mexican-American women who alleged that they suffered coerced sterilizations at the Los Angeles County USC Medical Center back in the 1970s. This is Maya Mannion. She's a visiting professor at Howard University School of Law and has researched the story behind the lawsuit Madrigal versus Quilligan. As Maya mentioned, the Madrigal 10 alleged that in the early 1970s, doctors at the medical center in Los Angeles coercively sterilized them. So what the women's stories exposed was common patterns in the ways medical center staff coerced these women into undergoing sterilization procedures. All of the 10 cases involved women whose primary language was Spanish, and each of the women underwent a tubal ligation after childbirth by cesarean section. And what was happening is that nurses and physicians exploited the fact that the women had limited English language skills and were seeking medical care for childbirth. And there were a number of different ways this was happening. First, all of the women were approached for consent to sterilization while in the midst of labor. Some of them testified that they were also heavily medicated at the time, and they were pressured into signing English language consent forms that they could not understand. Second, most of the women had to resist multiple requests by multiple staff to submit to sterilization. So from coming in for intake to being wheeled into the OR to have their C-section. And then third, in addition to being repeatedly pressed to sign these English language sterilization consent forms, which they couldn't understand uh, while they're in the midst of labor pains, many of the women lacked accurate information about the need for and consequences of a tubal ligation. So they would think that, well, if you can get your tubes tied, you could get them untied, that it was reversible. So they did not understand the consequences of this surgery. But the malicious practices in the medical center didn't go unnoticed. A doctor named Bernard Rosenfeld suspected he was witnessing sterilization abuse in the maternity ward and decided to blow the whistle. So what Dr. Rosenfeld did is he managed to get medical records um, of, of what he saw as sterilization abuse of women seeking medical care at the maternity ward. He managed to bring this to the attention of two lawyers in the area. He was reaching out, uh, working after his shift, reaching out to journalists, to civil rights groups, to government officials in the hopes of spurring some legal action. And his efforts finally paid off when his concerns came to the attention of Antonia Hernandez and Charles Nabrat, who are two of the lead attorneys in the Madrigal versus Quilligan case. And they were very young Mexican-American attorneys. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the details there because it's, well, it's an amazing story. Um, and the details are as shocking as anything else about this case. So maybe tell us a little bit about 
in the 1960s and in the 1970s. What is it precisely that was going on in that maternity ward? What were these doctors doing or saying to these women? Each of these women provided testimony during this court case. So just to give you a few examples to sort of give you a flavor of of why this was coercive and, and why women of color, you know, who were fighting this coined the term sterilization abuse, because it was seen as an abuse of the process of getting informed consent before treatment. So for example, one of the women, Georgina Hernandez, testified she arrived at the hospital. She was bleeding. She was experiencing labor pains. Staff pressed her to consent to sterilization at the time of her admission, but she refused. So she said no, but her labor progressed. The doctors felt a cesarean delivery was necessary, even though she had already refused to submit to sterilization while she was in labor and heading into an emergency C-section. She was asked again about having her tubes tied. And Hernandez later recalled, she recalled a woman right coming to her right before she's about to go in for the surgery to deliver her baby. And she says, I don't remember seeing this woman's face. I just remember a voice telling me, you better sign those papers or your baby could probably die here. And this was the pattern, 10 stories like this with this very, very similar pattern of being coerced or pressured under these very scary circumstances into consenting to a surgery that some of them, right, did not understand what the consequences were. Obviously, based on what you're telling us, then this is something like a a campaign being carried out against these Latina patients. So what is the rationale that these doctors are using that makes them feel that this is a logical thing to do? Well, I should note here that the doctors deny that. The doctors who testified, and to this day, the doctors deny that there was any such campaign, that there was any such policy to coerce these women into sterilization. Now, there's contradictory testimony, not only from the women themselves, but there was another witness that was called to the stand on behalf of the woman, this woman, Karen Benker, who was a medical student at the time and who said she was a firsthand witness to what was happening on the maternity ward. She testified that the rationale was to cut the birth rate of people of color in the Mm. county. She testified that she heard that as the rationale and that she also witnessed what these women were describing, that a doctor would hold a painkiller in front of a mother who was in labor pains and say, do you want the painkiller? Sign the papers. You need to sign the papers now. Um, Now, the women and their lawyers said the rationale was this racialized targeting of poor women. And this is going back to a long history in California in particular of targeting the reproduction of of Mexican Americans and the Mexican population, particularly because of these racialized notions that Mexican women are hyper fertile, that Mexican people have large families, and this is a population that we don't want to grow. And then how does this play out in the courtroom once they're there? There's two phases to this litigation. So in their challenge, the Magical Ten, um, they filed their lawsuit in June 1975, and they pursued two avenues of relief. One is known as injunctive relief, and the other is damages. Injunctive relief means 
they wanted a court order changing federal and state policies on informed consent, right? So they want to actually change the rules going forward so that this doesn't happen to more women in the future. And in particular, they say it's coercive and unfair to use English language forms that are written at a level that most of your patient population cannot understand. We want to change this to appropriate Spanish language consent forms, and we want other safeguards to protect against coerced sterilization. So they sought injunctive relief to toughen up federal and state policies on informed consent to sterilization. That was the first phase of the case. The second phase of the case, the legal term is damages, and that is financial compensation for these 10 women's injuries. So that is to recognize we were injured and we deserve financial compensation for that. So in the first phase, uh, seeking injunctive relief that would strengthen sterilization consent policies, the women achieved a victory. They actually won a court order to improve those policies and to change the consent forms. One of those key achievements was adding waiting periods to sterilization, which we still have today. We still have laws where you have waiting periods prior to a sterilization procedure. And it's because of this history. It's not because some of, of a paternalistic notion that people don't know whether or not they should get sterilization. It's because of this history of sterilization abuse to make sure that it's not being pressured in a high-pressure circumstance. It was given up under, basically under duress, this right. Under duress. So that's what they're trying to avoid. Now, what, was the, what did the defendants argue against <laughs> all of these pretty logical arguments? What was right. the defendant's case? So that was the second phase of the case, which was, do we give damages to these 10 women? Do we admit or does the court agree that these 10 women had their reproductive rights violated, had their right to procreate violated, that they were coerced into sterilization? So the doctors testified that they had a custom and practice of looking at the sterilization consent form, um, that they didn't remember these individual plaintiffs. This is a very, very busy maternity ward. They didn't remember each individual plaintiff, but they said, we respect consent is what the doctors testified. And we do that by looking at these forms. And ultimately, Judge Curtis credited the physician's testimony that generally speaking, we look at these forms and that's our custom and practice to rely mm. on these forms to be certain um, that informed consent was granted. Now, Curtis actually didn't dispute the testimony of the women, but just said, I don't see a pattern here of racialized targeting of these women's reproduction. He was very dismissive to the right. Magical Ten's argument that this was racialized targeting of their reproduction. Instead, he just saw it as each one is just an individual case. And unfortunately, there was a breakdown in communication, um, but I don't see any reason to say that these women should win damages here. So in a, in a nutshell, in an inversion of their intended purpose, Curtis treated these consent forms as a shield against physician liability mm. rather than as a means to protect patient autonomy, right? Our modern understandings of informed consent law is that it's, it's a protection of the patient's decision-making and bodily autonomy. It's supposed to be a benefit to the patient. 
And here it's just a shield for the physician against liability. So unfortunately, the women did not win compensation for themselves, but they did achieve victory for changing the law going forward for women coming after them. So the judge in that case essentially dismissed the human component of this and clung to the forms. Clung to the forms and credited the physician's testimony over the women's. Did the Madrigal 10 ever receive any kind of an apology from anybody, like the state of California, for the events that transpired? No, unfortunately, they did not. Now, I should note that in 2003, California did issue a formal apology for its history of coercive sterilization, although it did not award victims any reparations. Hmm. But this was not specific to the Madrigal 10. This was even going back to the era of eugenic sterilization. California, right? I mean, today we sort of think of California as, right, very progressive, very reproductive rights friendly. But California actually in 1909 was the third state to adopt laws authorizing the sterilization of the feeble-minded, feeble-minded in quotes, that was the language used in eugenic sterilization laws. And California actually accounted for one-third of the 60,000 non-consensual sterilizations that were performed throughout the U.S. in the early 20th century in this eugenics era. But there was no specific apology to the Madrigal 10. So it's a practice with deep roots. It's a practice that, um, to some degree, still confronts some denial. To what degree is sterilization still a threat for some people today? It is very much still a threat for some people today. Um, It's not gone away. And there are other ways in which sterilization is still a concern, although technology has changed. Now we have what are called LARCs, long-acting reversible contraception. Now, LARCs are a wonderful thing. Sterilization is a wonderful thing for people who want it, right? I mean, reproductive technologies are double-edged sword. They have promise and peril. They they help women and and pregnant people or, or could be pregnant people control the reproduction, but they can also be so easily abused. So there's a lot of sort of enthusiasm around LARCs. But reproductive justice advocates also fear, right, that these will be used to target low-income populations Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that the era of family planning, right, federal funding for family planning was ushered in in the 60s and 70s, and that was the double-edged sword. Poor women got access to these technologies, but then they also suffered abuse. And so we see that today. There are some, there's been reporting about LARC programs where the state will pay for insertion of a long-acting removal contraception, but not removal, in which case you've effectively mm. been sterilized. Wow. So we always have to think about the double-edged sword of technologies that we have available to help people control their reproduction, but in the wrong hands, they can lead to abuse. And that is that is still a concern today, especially when we think about this in connection with the full spectrum of reproductive health policy. Sterilization is very much linked to our policy on contraception, on abortion, on welfare, and even back in the 70s, 
reproductive justice advocates, women of color, were linking these different issues, right? So they in the set. This is the early seventies. There's right Roe versus Wade is happening. There's talk about right and debates about not only about sterilization abuse but also about abortion. And back in the seventies, activists, reproductive justice and rights activists noted or argued that, you know, cutting back on access to abortion is going to mean increased sterilization abuse because how how are poor women especially going to control their reproduction, right? If they, they can't afford to pay for contraception, they can't afford another child, welfare payments are cut back, they can't access abortion care because of all the increasing restrictions put on abortion. The only funded alternative left is sterilization. So there are different ways you can think about sterilization being coerced. Maya Mannion is a visiting professor at Howard University's School of Law. You can find her research on Madrigal versus Quilligan in the book Murray, Shaw, and Siegel's Reproductive Rights and Justice Stories. 